0: Good morning. So it's another opportunity we have to be together in the Word. And again, it's good to have Jeff back. And thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak with you today. And uh, we're going to end up going through a couple of portions of Scripture just to kind of... Some of you were not able to be with us last week. And um, as a result, you, you missed the recap that we've done from the Chapter 1 to Chapter 5. I don't know how many of you were able to get a hold of this book and I had my I had my recommendation to you for it. This book has successfully laid me on the autopsy table this week and has just dissected my heart. Like, I got to tell you, it's been has been rough. <laughs> so I get to share that with you today. I'll share that little burden on you. Um, but this whole chapter on dice, uh, 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 talking about um, understanding your heart struggle, I can't recommend this more to you than 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 just say get, get the book, begin in chapter five. <laughs> And it will prepare you uh, very well. What's been going on in the book is the the idea that uh, we are all instruments in the Redeemer's hands. That's been the purpose for which you were saved when you were called out of darkness into his light. You are not just done so just to give you an eternal home and a hope in heaven someday, but to put you on a mission to make you a, a, a useful utensil in the hands of your master, your Savior, your Lord, who wants to use you to now change someone else's life. And that's where the subtitle of the book comes from, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. That's how God's design is, that he wants to use not perfect, flawless people. He wants to use imperfect people to be able to bring about change in other people's lives. And that's, that's a beautiful thing about God, how he can use, um, use us in that way. Um, so uh, I think Pastor Farrell says God can use crooked sticks to strike straight licks. <laughs> that's how it is with us. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, that's been really interesting to see that. So chapter one was talking about this mission that we've been given as uh, Christians to have uh, to reach out and to meet the needs of those around us, not just to pay ministers and professional servants in the church, but that we take up that mantle and we do that uh, as God has called us to do that. Oh, before I go on too far, I'm going to give you chapter two is all about um, understanding where you fit in the, in the body life of the church chapter 3, just to kind of catch up, this is where Pastor Jeff left off just before he left two weeks ago. And that was the idea that we need to build a an understanding of what biblical anthropology is. Biblical anthropology just means what does the Bible say about who we are as people, as, as a man, as a, as a human being. And uh, there were three specific points in the book that I thought were extremely helpful that, that Jeff brought out. Um, the idea that we are created, first of all, to be revelation receivers. That's Paul Tripp's term revelation receivers that before even the fall occurred before we fell into sin that we were created to be absolutely dependent upon the word of God that when we stray off the word of God we begin to lean onto our own understanding or lean onto our own impressions or our own experience or our own instincts we become subhuman he used the word subhuman in that passage or in that in that chapter that is to say, we become, we fall far short of what we were intended and created to be. We were created to live by every word that perceived out of the mouth of God, which is retained here in the Word of God. So uh, not just retained, it is the Word of God. Uh, make sure I make that very clear. But that's a, that was a critical, important thing. And if we, if we really understand that, we're going to have to order our lives according to that truth. It's going to practically have to be uh, played out. second thing he mentioned was that we were... Revelation receivers. What else do you say? Oh, we're natural interpreters, that we try to find meaning in everything that happens to us. That's that's part of who we are. That's part of our design after the image of God, that things don't just happen needlessly, that God has a purpose and a plan and a reason behind what happens to us. And yet we so often assign meaning to those events and and try to find significance in those things, and we try to know things we cannot know, because they're outside of our ability to know them. Because only the sovereign mind. Of God has ordered those things for our purpose. So we understand that. And thirdly, he says we are created to be worshipers, that inside of each one of us, we are bent to worship someone and, and ultimately him. And, and yet we find other uh, gods to worship so often. Um, I must have bumped that by mistake. So that's chapter three, living in light of this new anthropology, this, this biblical anthropology that we understand or that has been revealed to us in Scripture and how needful we are of the Word of God. Now, chapter four kind of penetrated into the into the heart of man and showed that the heart is the target. In fact, any kind of change that would ever take place in your life, if it's going to last, if it's going to be permanent, if it's going to actually transform your life, it's got to penetrate the surface behavior of your life and it's got to get into the heart. The heart has to be absolutely revolutionized by the truths of Scripture. So the heart is always the target and uh, a couple of things along that line, he gave us four word pictures from the chapter that correspond to four basic parables in, in the New Testament that Jesus himself talked about and taught about the heart. So last week we talked about the roots in the fruits analogy from, uh, from Luke chapter 6, 43. And he talked about, uh, Jesus said that every tree produces fruit that reveals and manifests the characterization of its root. But in other words, a good tree brings forth good fruit. And a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. Therefore, a bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit, and a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit. You understand that 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 um, that basic analogy there? That is to say that what manifests as fruit in our lives, what comes to the surface and is visible, is actually indicative of an organic relationship with what's down inside, the heart, right? So if you think like me, if you're like me, and you think yourself to be a decent Human being and a, ordin- you know, an ordinarily nice guy. You know, you're 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 pretty pretty good, easy going, and yet you see all these fruits, and you're like, like me in my home, creating conflicts needlessly, and I I behave in ways that are horrible or evil sometimes, and just just dis- dishonoring of my wife, and creating conflict around my children, and, uh, and throwing my my pride gets in the way and creates uh, issues in my home. Then I begin to have to reach another conclusion. Is the Bible true <laughs> when it says bad fruit comes from bad trees or uh, am I correct in thinking that I'm actually a good person? I'll have to check that that assumption that I have about myself, won't I, against the scriptures. So that's the question I have to ask. Fruits are always produced by, by roots. We have to uh, accept that and then apply that as it, as it relates to our life. That is your behavior, your reactions, your responses, your words, your attitudes. We just talked about attitudes this morning. Um, so yeah, I'm one of those that had a bad attitude last week, several times when I got left with the kids all Saturday morning. I'm like, how does my wife do this without murdering one of our children? <laughs> Seriously, it's, uh, she does a great job and uh, thank God for her. We, did, we made it. We made it. But those things are not, the problems you face and the attitudes you have are not forced upon you from outside sources. You have to understand that. You don't, nothing can make you angry. Well, you said it doesn't sound correct, but we're going to show you. Uh, the scriptures say that it, it's what's inside the heart of man that responds to these outside situations that reveal an already desirous and lustful heart that is now reacting. And your anger is not coming from an external source. It's coming from within. So whatever you think, say, or do emanates from within your own heart. So whatever comes out of you is less a function of your environment, your upbringing, your body chemistry, your biology, and more of a reflection of what's doing in your heart. Jesus says that what's for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. My pastor used to say it this way: What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Whatever comes out of your mouth is a absolute stunning revelation of what's in your heart, and you can't you can't say. They, they drove me to it. it made this this situation made me angry no it's it's you're revealing yourself in fact uh, we your heart will always produce visible fruits that evidence themselves and your words and your behavior, your attitudes, your actions, your values, and your responses. So this is just review the mouth always speaks from what fills the heart. Your words will tell on you <laughs> they will reveal what's going on deep in the inner contemplations of your inner self, your heart. Your behavior, therefore, will always reveal your true beliefs. Okay? And your conduct will clarify your creed. So, as I said, what's in the well will come up in the bucket. Instead of being a man of action in my life, in my, my home, I often find myself to be just a man of reaction. I, I go about things and I, I react in the flesh. I react in, at circumstances that come up and that's degrading. That's against what Christ was trying to show us is the proper way. We need to not just be reactors, but to um, give serious thought to what's going on in our hearts. Real, lasting, permanent change can't come from behavior modification. Practicing self-discipline or rearranging the flesh, there has to be a fundamental change at the heart level. This this, uh, This truth has revolutionized our parenting. We're working on this in our home. It's very easy to correct a child's external behavior. It's very easy to just address their behavioral problems by saying, you know, hey, quiet down, sit down, be careful, you know, do, you know, obey, listen to me, instant obedience, and you conform that child to become uh, the 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 servant of your direct command, and you got them under control, and they'll they'll just they'll snap to your to your, your your orders, and yet miss the deeper reality of the fact that they are a spiritual being with. With a heart that needs to be guided and trained and shepherded into um, a love for their Savior, and that they ought to be motivated by a desire to obey Christ from the heart, not just from external obedience point of view. So this is I found that what's true for my children is always true for myself, and uh, looking to try to make sure the heart is always central in the focus. The heart of the matter, the heart of every matter, is the matter of our hearts. And as an illustration, uh Paul Tripp uses this pretty insightful. Um, consider yourself have you ever been stuck in a traffic uh traffic jam? And he he tells a story about going in this getting stuck in a traffic jam and thinking about all the different events he had made plans for and now was going to have to miss or how this was gonna backlog into his day and it was just gonna it was driving him nuts sitting in this traffic jam. Have you all been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you had to wait in a line and you're like person in front of you can't figure out how to insert the credit card into the machine the correct way, and you're just going bananas, right? You want to go over there and snatch it out of their hand and say, step aside, let a professional handle this, okay? Uh, uh, it's, it just drives you nuts. But, you know, you see, you, see, you, you, you see those situations. He says, now listen, when I was sitting in this traffic jam, he says, I happened to notice something very unusual. As I'm sitting there, you know, chewing on my steering wheel, okay, so angry, I look over to the car next to me, and I see a woman who's kind of enjoying the morning. You can see she's kicked back in her chair. She's got the radio turned up. She's got a smile on her face. She's singing along. She's enjoying the extra time that this traffic jam produced. This person, this, there's a lady over here who's applying makeup for the whoever knows how many times, but she's enjoying the time he's given her to prepare more adequately for her day. And he's looking around. He's seeing people around him are not frustrated, but he is. Now, they're all in the same circumstance. They're all subjected to the same conditions, but yet it's him that's having the anger problem. Now, now that reveals something, doesn't it? Is it the situation there, then, that makes you angry? Or is it something already going wrong in the heart? Which I thought was pretty insightful. Not everyone is angered or annoyed or frustrated by the same people that you are. Some people are... Um, in fact, we'll put it this way, everyone will respond differently to those situations based on the heart you bring to them. And it may seem like these situations cause you to be angry, but as we'll see in James chapter four, in reality, these situations are only supplying for you an occasion, an opportunity where your heart lust is revealed, your desires are revealed that indicate there is a war raging inside of you. That's what James four will be all about when we get to chapter five. Just a moment. That's key, though. You have a war going on inside of you, and that's producing external fruit. Now, Jesus also talks about the the problem with the uh, externalism that that was practiced by the Pharisees. And when we looked at Matthew chapter twenty three last week, we looked at the idea that the Pharisees were very much about changing the outward man, changing his behavior and putting on strict regimens of discipline and, and practice and legalism in order to ensure outward conformity to the law. And yet they were missing the inner realities of the Spirit of God that were operate, should, should be operating in the heart. And Jesus calls them out on that. He turns the heart inside out. He says, really, your heart is like a glass or like a cup that should be first cleaned inside so that the outside can be cleaned. And so the danger is we often default to an pr- approach called externalism. We try to just contain our anger, bite our lips, you know, bite our tongue, smile <laughs> as hard as we can, and we try to manip- we try to struggle against our external nature and just try to bring external conformity without addressing the inner nature of what's going on. Externalism focuses on behavior modification regulations, manipulation, remediation, stringent remediation to affect the desired behavioral outcome. This happens all the time when someone's... uh, I had a man who came to us who was dealing with a a problem with pornography and he was struggling regularly with this and he wanted victory from it. And his approach to that problem, this is an example, his approach to that problem was to absolutely any, any computer, any TV, anything digital or anything in his house that potentially could create a temptation to him, he took it out and took a baseball bat to it and crushed it, crushed it. I mean, he was really zealous about getting victory over the situation. So he was trying to remove any external temptation that he would have ever have to face. And yet, over time, what, what happened is he continued to find ways to get exposure to that kind of thing. Now, what's the problem there? The problem is he's addressing an internal problem, by external means, right? He's not really dealing with the heart. He's just dealing with the external things, which will change, and you can't manipulate. They're outside of your control. You walk through. You walk through the checkout line at Walmart. I mean, you're going to be exposed to things like that. So you must deal first with the inside of the heart. And yet, this is often our default approach: is that we think if we just change our, our, our the conditions of our relationships, the changes of the circumstances of our life, we just change the outside things that, that confront us, the temptations that might come at us, then then we'll be better off. And yet, Jesus is saying it's a it needs to be dealt with in the um, realm and the sphere of the heart. Externalism attempts to solve sin and conflict problems by changing externals, structuring the environment, circumstances, relationships, and using a bunch of man-made strategies that actually avoid dealing with the heart. Yes, we do.
1: Because it's easier to manipulate... If by simply tell them exactly, you don't wear this, you wear this, you don't wear this. It takes a lot longer to address issues of the heart. Yeah. And it's, in ministry, I see that all the time. You tell people you're saved by faith and not works. And said they get saved, you tell them how to live by works. And yeah. you tell them how to, because it's a quicker result. A lot longer, a lot more time, and pain, state, effort to sit there and try to work through your heart than it is to just lay down the ball. Yeah. So. And like, sometimes that, too, is your own pride because you don't want them to embarrass you. you don't yeah. Yeah, there's shame upon you, so you want to get that, make sure you understand how to behave, what to do, so that people are not judging you as a parent.
0: Yeah. I, I fall into that self serving motives behind my parenting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what that is, and we're missing you don't the heart want your struggle. To
1: the door with those pants that are way too tight. More because of what others don't think about you as parents, you're wearing those pants than you are about coaching that heart and nurturing right. that heart.
0: So what do we need to do there, we need to to pause and realize what's what, you know, probe deeper into those scenarios, those opportunities, and not just try to slap a a, loop, a rule down. Sometimes rules are good for when they're younger. I'm sure you got to have some rules. I'm not saying rules; all rules are bad, but I'm saying that rules are a means to explain the principles that should be operating and should be governing a a young mind and young heart, and explain why why these things are beneficial to them spiritually. Because I said so is not always a good reason for things. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> going to talk that.
1: that is hard because you, you're offended if they don't believe exactly like you. Instead of understanding God has given them a unique personality, I had to teach I yesterday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're to be receptive to understanding the ideal is not that everybody becomes like me. Right. <laughs> and get sure. mad at them because they don't think exactly like you. Cause mm-hmm. And that's your own pride thinking you have it all figured out.
0: <laughs> that's very true. Very true. Absolutely. So even though we're skating through this on, off the surface, I, I hope that you'll see that even this will have manifold uh, impacts in so many areas of your own personal life, your parenting, your relationships at work. But looking at things from the internal lens and not from an external one will help you see what the, the impact of what Jesus is teaching us there. It's so phenomenal. We default to a pharisaical mentality most of the time. So being aware of that. Is so critical. The fourth, uh, the third uh, imagery he uses, and I didn't get a chance to talk about this last week, and I don't know if I'm going to get a chance this week. So I'll skate through this. Holly did this in her um, small session yesterday with the ladies about idolatry. That is a problem. You know, uh, we think of idolatry as a, an ancient or more pagan form of uh, of a sin, and yet we, of course, are constantly making idols of a different nature that are in the heart. It doesn't have to be necessarily represented by a material or physical thing, like a a statue or whatever. It is something that is already uh, endemic to our nature. Um, In Ezekiel chapter 14, um, God commands, tells tells Ezekiel to tell Israel, I will no longer be approached by you. You will not come near me in in your sacrifices and your offerings. While you continue to entertain idols, and they're thinking, idols? What idols? We're, we're, we have the temple in Jerusalem. We have the worship of Jehovah God. He's like, no, you misunderstand. The, the temples you have constructed and the idols that you are worshiping don't live in the temple structure. They live inside the heart. They are in the heart. That's how um, subversive they are. They lay hold of the hearts. And, Jesus, and, and Christ is saying, or uh, the Lord God here, Christ uh, ultimately, you know, is saying, I will lay hold of their hearts in the house of Israel uh, so that they may uh, uh, abandon and leave behind their idols. The heart, therefore, is considered a shrine to secret worship in the, in the Bible. Uh, we oftentimes uh, think the, oil, we, this, the heart is a sacred place where we pledge our devotion to that which we find is most sacred to us. If you think your, you, your, your honor is the most sacred thing to you, you will defend it at all costs you will worship yourself you'll worship your honor if someone disrespects you or cuts you off in traffic or somehow attacks your pride in some way you will stand to defend that which you are worshiping and serving and and, and uh, you have pledged complete devotion to that thing and you have constructed an idol which you will worship the temple of the heart because it is not publicly visible is even more dangerous because we can go through the outward machinations and mechanics of worship and appear to be worshipping Jehovah, God, and yet at the same time be subversively and quietly worshipping another idol. We build idols, uh, we build shrines to these idols within our hearts, things which we count sacred and we vow to protect, worship, and serve them. So if if you're an idol, a good definition would be anything that um, rules you and causes you to uh, even be willing to disobey God for um, an idol creates a competing love with God, and a loyalty to and a competing loyalty to Christ. It's a secret polytheism. You wouldn't think of yourself as a polytheist, would you? Uh, and yet, uh, we would we would look at utter amazement at the cultures around the world that worship. The Hindu religion has thirty three million gods. Thirty three million gods. You think that's ridiculous. And yet, we, we are exactly the same way in so many ways. So, well, we worship different gods. We call them different names. We call them, di- you know, they have different uh, manifestations in our culture. Uh, but we still worship money. We still worship power, c- recreation. We worship recreation. I know the Old Testament God that often appears is the God of Baal. I think today the God of Baal is pretty close. I mean, in a lot of ways. We worship the ball field. We worship the, you know, we worship sports. We worship those things. And truth be told, you say that's pretty harsh. Listen, tell me I'm wrong. Show me I'm wrong somehow in that, because we do. We are so willing to sub- subject or lower God's uh, commands in priority in our life for other priorities that might re- uh, that might be like sports uh, attendance and things like that. And we use good things like competitive sports. to actually actually fight against the commands of God. We need to be careful about our priorities in that regard. We worship pleasure. We worship self-fulfillment, sexual gratification, personal significance. These are all gods. They're all idols that uh, lay hold in our lives with enslaving power, and we serve them with such ease because our hearts are idol factories. We create them, and we worship them, the, the works of our own making. Our behavior is ultimately controlled by this idolatry, and our besetting sins really can just be described as our disgraceful genuflection before the idol enshrined in our own hearts. We worship it in uh, repetitive and ritual ways. And if we fail to raid the temple of the heart, we destroy and destroy those idols. Even biblical instruction and counsel can create a more committed and successful idolater. Now, that point, don't let that slip by you because... I've got I to share this little anecdote from the book that he shares that helps illustrate this amazing. And I've seen this myself um, when I pastored with and counseled uh, many people. It's very easy to slap a Bible verse on a problem and an issue. As I was talking about last week, it's, um, you need a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. You can't just, someone with marriage problems, say, hey, take two doses of Ephesians chapter 5 and call me in the morning. Uh, You have to get at the heart of the problem. He shows that here in this really neat anecdote. Paul says this. "Uh, I once counseled a successful executive from New York City. He was the most controlling man I have ever met. He had been married for 30 years and handled all of the financial, parenting, and decorating decisions of the family. He was so obsessed with control that he would rearrange his wife's clothes closet according to his prescribed plan. Now, imagine that I did not know all of this as as I spoke to his wife and his controlling tendencies would not be in my mind as I listened to her complain that she and her husband never talk and that many conflicts are left unresolved. What would happen if I rolled up my counselor sleeves and I gave the husband good biblical instruction on communication and conflict resolution? Would this lead to basic changes in their marriage? The answer is no, because he would now use this new information, this new understanding and skills, to get what his own heart worshiped. Because my counsel would not have addressed this man's idols of the heart. It would only be producing a more successful controller. If you tell a, a man who is dominant and controlling that he should make his wife, that the Bible says the wife should submit, he will employ that and weaponize that to, to um, bring his wife into total submission and, and uh, often use uh, unbiblical, unbiblical means, unchristian means to do that. And he becomes a more successful controller, becomes a more successful idolater. He uses that scripture to bring uh, that desire for dom- dominance, that rules in his heart, and he will employ whatever principles and skills he learned to establish even greater control over his family. So you can see how it's important that we don't just we, we, we probe deeper into what's going on, what idols are resident in the heart that are controlling behavior and desires. Um, I'm going to skip past the treasure principle. Um, that's uh, another rephrasing or repackaging of the same, of the same uh, teaching here. So according to James, where does conflict come from? If we take our Bibles, we'll go to James chapter 4, verse 1 this morning. Let me ask you a multiple choice question this morning. I always love multiple choice. I got half a chance to get it right because uh, there's only two, two options here. Does, does conflict come from something or someone else, or does it be, come from within ourselves? According to James chapter 4, verse 1. Can someone who has it there read it out loud for us, and we'll consider it and give some thought. I got it. Okay, Phil? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? <clears throat> is not the source of your pleasures
1: that wage war on your members?
0: Yeah, okay, you yes. Trust? Yeah, you can go ahead and keep reading, maybe two or three. Read down to verse 3, I think. Is okay, where the, through,
1: through verse 3? Yeah, I think okay. the
0: sentence ends there.
1: You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures.
0: That's right. Okay, so answer is comes from within yourselves. James is saying that you have a conflict raging within you. Why do certain things seem to drive us crazy? It's because you have desires. You have lust. The King James used the word lust. It's the word for desire. It means some, some desire is now elevating itself in your heart that you want so badly that you begin to look at people through the grid of either you help me get what I want and we'll have peace or you, give, or you don't give me what I want and we're going to have war. That's how you look at things. That's how you look at people. And these desires begin to uh, um, create a conflict within. I'm going to just skip to the last slide I've got. I'm going to give you the final payoff here. How do you like that? You don't have to sit through all of this. I wish that you could. And you need to pick up the book and read chapter 5 because it will, literally, it will absolutely x-ray your heart. Lay on the autopsy table and just say, man, that's what that's what's going on. You have a desire. Look at this bottom part. He's, he shows the progression of how desires end up producing conflict. So you have a desire. It might be a good desire. He says, like coming home from work at the end of the day, you're tired, and exhausted, and you're looking forward to just hanging out, sitting in the hammock, drinking a tall glass of lemonade, and kicking back and relax. That's your desire. Now, is there anything wrong with relaxation? No, <laughs> not at all. It's good for us to relax. But this is a desire you now set your heart upon. And as you approach your home and you walk in the door, you're, you see kids swinging from chandeliers. You see the, 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 the house is a disaster, and your wife's frazzled, and there's yelling and lots of things. This isn't, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your home, <laughs> only, in, only in my home. Um, so now this desire to have a relaxing night now competes with other desires. Okay, I do desire to be a good dad. I desire to help my wife. I do. I understand that. But what's more important to me right now is that just get a break. Okay, So now this desire takes precedence over other desires. Okay, You're now at war within yourself. You know you should be doing one thing, and yet you just really got to have this other thing. So this desire becomes a demand. I must have quiet and peace in my house. The desire becomes a demand. And the demand then becomes an expectation. If I don't get what I expect, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be issues. I'm going to create a fuss. Okay? The expectation, therefore, now ascends the ladder into, now it is my right, as the man of my castle, the king of my castle, I will have the rest in the peace in my home. And you all better shape up. Okay. This is now in my mind, this is exactly where I'm at. It, this is now my right. And as a right that is being now not abided by, I find this great disappointment in this. A great. Dis- and now as a result of this, as the king in my castle, I will now... Issue punishment upon all of the subjects of my castle. <laughs> I will now punish, and I will um, bring into order everything. Now you say, is it is it wrong for a house to be ordered in peaceful and quiet? No, none of this is wrong. It is now the problem is not that it is wrong what you're asking for. The problem is now that this desire has so gripped you and so controlled you and so dominated you, you cannot think about anything else until you get what you want, and that enslaving passion, desire. Is what's creating the conflicts. It happens in churches all the time. People who want certain things happening in the church, and they are willing to create a fuss. Now, they may be good things, maybe holy and righteous things. Yet, the way they are carrying it about is such a controlling and passionate pursuit that they are cre- creating great conflicts. Might be what's going on in your marriage, perhaps. Um, something that you want so badly that you're willing to run over people and punish them for not giving you what you. What you desire. What is the solution? I'm gonna I wish we had time. I'll give you this to go. James 4 gives you what? Eleven things. Here's how you get it right. Submit to God. The problem is you want to be king, you want to be sovereign, you want your desire, your will to be filled. And the answer is: as Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Thy will. You've got to put your will in its proper place, your desires. Obviously, you come home that night. You thought you had a right to rest. God instead says, "No, it's you have a you have I have designed for this situation to be where you step in and be the loving husband and father and straighten the house in appropriate ways." To and this is the challenge I've laid before you. God's will is that you you step into those situations and do what He's He's laid out for you to do. Resist the devil. Um, that's clear. This this is just James four unfolding. There's ten commands sequentially placed that talk about how we subjugate these desires that rule in our lives. First of all, to submit to the will of God, to resist the devil's attacks upon our homes and our families, our lives, to close the distance your desires have created, to draw near unto God, and he'll draw near unto you, he says in James 4, 8. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, and then he says you need to take in stock of what's going on, and even goes so far to say you need to be miserable and mourn and weep. Get serious about this conflict you're creating because what you're doing is you're imposing your will upon situations and creating conflicts and humble yourself as one who's received grace. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is really this is the meat of James chapter 4 right here. Um, this is how to solve conflicts in your heart. Pick up the book. Read chapter 5. I, to, I dare you to read it. I dare you. It'll just flay you open, okay? It'll be good for us. It's good for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be in the Word. I thank you for uh, the short time we've spent. I hope that in the, in the small time that we've had, the Holy Spirit will um, just emblazon this upon our hearts, that we are in desperate need of grace. We Our desires will compete against your desires and they do so in subtle ways. Lord, help us to realize that you are in control. Your sovereign hand has given us all things uh, and orchestrated all the events of our life so that we would respond to them and have opportunities to test these truths. Lord, this week there will be a test for this truth, whether we will rise up and create conflict because of desires that we have, or whether we'll submit ourselves in resignation to the will of God. Lord, help us to find ways to practice this. And we'll give you the glory, praise, and honor for what you'll accomplish in our lives. Help us to not be just hearers of the word, but doers of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.